You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. Steve, the topic for this week's episode is kind of inconceivable to me as an actress because I would never turn down a part. (laughs) That's very funny. (laughs) But we're going to be talking about some very famous actors who turned down roles that now we think we can't imagine anyone else in them than who was cast. Exactly. You know, it is funny because I think when actors get offered a role, you just use your best judgment. I would imagine I'm, I'm not an actor, but man, some of those judgments were so off. So off. Yeah. So let's just dive right in. Let's dive in. The first one, this is mind-blowing in its consistency. <laughs> I know, and yes. George Raft, (laughs) as you call him, the man who made Bogart. He did. Humphrey Bogart should be so thankful for George (laughs) Raft. (laughs) Yes. So when it came to picking movies, George Raft was pretty lousy, right? He was terrible. I mean, as you say, he might have become more of a household name if he had said yes to some of these. Because, you know, I mean, he became like a star almost overnight when he appeared in in the Howard Hawks-directed gangster film Scarface in 1932. That really placed him on the map, made him a bona fide star. And then, of course, every script in Hollywood started coming to him, and he made some pretty boneheaded decisions. So the first one is in 1937, Samuel Goldwyn approaches him.
him about the whole dead end yes. kids genre, the and crime you guys drama. Probably no, but if you don't, the dead end series were these kind of a, a gang of street kids who, you know, would get involved <laughs> in mysteries. And it would also show life on the street in New York back in the day. And these dead end kid actors were Leo Gorsi and Hunts Hall and Gabriel Dell. So Raft is offered a role in this, and he thinks it's not sympathetic enough, so he passes on it, and a young actor by the name of Humphrey Bogart steps in, and he pretty much becomes a star from that, right? Yes. I mean, he really got everyone's attention from Dead End, and it really made a strong impression on moviegoers and the Hollywood power players. Yeah. So it upped his stock quite a bit in Hollywood. And then not too long after that... And this one kills me. (laughs) Yeah, this one kills me too. So George Raft is offered the role of Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon in 1941. And he passes. <laughs> he passes on it. Well, the the, the part that, that I love is that one of the reasons he passed on it was he just wasn't so sure about a first-time director. Of, of course, that director was John Huston. <laughs> and he also had a clause in his contract that said that he did not do remakes. Okay. And The Maltese Falcon had been made in 1931 with Ricardo Cortez as Sam Spade. Okay. So he just said, nope, not for me. Two, two strikes against that one. And of course, Humphrey Bogart was only too happy to step in as Sam Spade, and it really made him a star. And he appears opposite Mary Astor as the femme fatale. But Mary Astor only got the part after Geraldine Fitzgerald turned it down. Wow. Another bad move, Geraldine. All right, so now we move on to the third, <laughs> and maybe the, the third uh, nail yes. in the coffin of this. He is set to play the bank robber Roy Earl in High Sierra, 1941. Iconic. Absolutely. He didn't want his character to die at the end, so he quit. Exactly. And of course, who takes the role but Humphrey (laughs) Um, Bogart, Bogart. opposite Ida Lupino and a very unlucky dog named Pard, and another classic film was born. (sighs) Well... At the very least, I hope Humphrey Bogart sent him an edible arrangement. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> All right. Moving on to His Girl Friday, one of my favorite films. Rosalind Russell could not be more delicious in I, anything she's in, it's actually. It's hard to imagine anyone else playing the role. And what I find really interesting is, of course, it's based on the play The Front Page, yes. which was written by two ex-newspaper guys. And it's about two men. Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. Yeah, and it it was actually the, the character of Hildy Johnson was originally a man right. in the play. So in the film version, Cary Grant is already set. That's a foregone conclusion. Yes. He's going to play Walter, Walter Burns. Walter, yes. Now, I can sort of see this, but not to the perfection of Ms. Russell. Carol Lombard was supposed to play Hildy Johnson. Yes, she was Hawk's first choice. He really, really wanted her. He'd had such a great experience directing her in the screwball comedy 20th Century in 1934 that he offered her the role. But by now, Lombard is no longer under contract. She's a freelancer, and she's too expensive. He can't afford her. her. (laughs) Good for her. So then the role is offered to a long list. Yes. Catherine Hepburn. 
Claudette Colbert, Margaret Sullivan. Good old Margaret. I can see Margaret Sullivan doing it. Yes. Ginger Rogers, Irene Dunn. Irene. And Jean Arthur. They all turned it down. And the thing is, it is one of the, <laughs> the most beautifully written oh, it's characters amazing. for a woman in the decade. Like, I wonder what each of those women saw in that role that made them turn it down. I do, too. And I can only imagine it just was meant to go to Rosalind. And I love that their loss was Rosalind Russell's gain because, of course, Howard Hawks finally turns to her, who she's under contract at MGM. And I love this because Russell wrote in her autobiography, Life is a Banquet, which if you haven't read, it's incredible. She gets this call while she's visiting some friends up in Connecticut. So she gets the offer. She's on her way to New York to fly back to LA to start this movie. And she reads a New York Times article announcing her casting. And they also mention all the other actresses who turned down the role. That's just wrong. Well, the article kind of implied that Howard Hawks was sort of stuck with her. She was a <laughs> last resort, which was kind of humiliating for Roz. Of course. But she gets the last laugh because it becomes a huge commercial and critical hit, and it ends up being one of the best movies Rosalind Russell will ever do in her career. Yep. And she kind of is known for that quick, you know. (laughs) Oh, that machine gun dialogue. Oh, it's just amazing. Incredible. Yeah, she's just amazing. All right. Mildred Pierce. 1945. Now, I had heard a kernel of this story in the past, but this is another one that's interesting. I know. We, we you know we love our Joan Crawford. <laughs> yes, we love talking I, about her. I can't imagine anyone else playing Mildred Pierce, to be honest. I think she was so perfect. And as we all know, she won the Best Actress Oscar for the role, but it also served as a big comeback for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, her career was in the toilet right. when she got this offer finally. But it almost didn't happen. Right, because director Michael Curtis wanted Betty Davis to star in the role. And this is surprising coming from (laughs) Betty Davis. She didn't want to play a woman with a grown daughter, so she passed on it. I know. I find that interesting because it was such a great role. And Betty Davis is all about that. I mean, picking the the character and all that. Well, after Betty passed, next they wanted Barbara Stanwyck. Who would be, I gotta say, she would have been great. Would have been great. But she was tied up with another movie. Well, in the meantime, Joan Crawford had gotten wind of the project, and she started to actively campaign for the role of Mildred. But Curtis did not want her nope, for the role. didn't want her. He actually suggested Olivia de Havilland or her sister Joan Fontaine, but the studio felt that they were too young to realistically have a grown daughter. Okay, so then, the <laughs> ultimate humiliation, oh. Curtis makes Crawford screen test. And she, you said, her career was yes. on the downslide, but yes. she was a big old star. I know. It was nobody of her magnitude or her status screen tested. Nobody. So it was really, it was insulting. It was humiliating. But she did it, and and I love her for that. Yeah. She she knew what that part was. She did, and she knew what it could do for her career. And so she swallowed her pride, and she screen tested, and she blew it out of the water. She got the part, and the rest is history. Yeah, she won the Oscar, yeah. and she was back on top. We've talked about all about Eve a, a couple of different times yes. on this podcast. Nineteen fifty. This is a really interesting one because the person that was slated to play the role, I cannot even imagine playing it. <laughs> I know. Me me either. It would have been interesting. That's you all think? I'm going to say. You think? Uh, different. Okay, different, different, <laughs> different. So um, All About Eve is based on Mary Orr's novel, The Wisdom of Eve. 
And of course, we all know all about a perhaps arguably one of the greatest films of all time, at least screenplays. It's about Margot Channing, this aging Broadway diva whose life is upended by the arrival of the young woman named Eve. And casting Margot, which is a larger-than-life part, it is not going to be an easy thing. But Mankiewicz, Joseph Mankiewicz, envisioned Susan Hayward in the role. I know, right? I, I just, I don't quite see it. I, I think she's maybe too young. Yeah, too young. Know. I don't know. I just don't feel like... Yes. Mm. But Daryl Zanuck says, mm, no, not going to happen. Then other actresses, such as Marlena Dietrich, Gertrude Lawrence, they were considered. Daryl Zanuck wanted Barbara Stanwyck. Doesn't everybody want Barbara Stanwyck? She would be wonderful <laughs> in it. Joan Crawford, yes. I could also see. But they're both tied up in other movies. So... Who do they finally decide upon? <laughs> this is what blows me away. Claudette Colbert. Yeah. Which you would never think that Claudette Colbert would be the right type yeah. for this acerbic and, and almost bitter, sassy. Uh, oh, she's yeah. just, you know, just, you wanted yeah. to have this deep voice. Because and... <laughs> Claudette Colbert was such a lady yes, and so she, soft and yes. so elegant. I mean, I know we can act things, yeah, but, but, but the, the essence. Margot was gritty and she was a fighter and, and, and just, yes. yeah, it does not compute. <laughs> so she's cast in the role, but two weeks before oh. the film is going to start shooting, she has a severe back injury and ordered to stay in bed for six weeks. Right. And so rather than wait for her to hear they decided to go forward and recast, which must have broken Claudette Colbert's heart. And Daryl Zanuck's heart. Yes. <laughs> right? Because he really wanted her. <laughs> so Mankiewicz chose Betty Davis, and we just can't think of anybody else in that role now. Oh, no way. With Eve Harrington, that was also set to be played by someone else, right? Yes. It was originally supposed to be Gene Crane. Okay. The and beautiful, lovely 1940s star we probably know from State Fair and other frothy musicals. And she was set to do it, but she became pregnant. And of course, who ends up playing the role of Eve Harrington is Anne Baxter. Anne Baxter. I know I keep saying, I just can't imagine how this person could have possibly played it. But here's another one. Yeah, this one's good. Sunset Boulevard, 1950. Can you imagine anyone besides Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond and William Holden as Joe Gillis? Uh, no. No, no yeah. way. Well, but... it was almost a very different direction. <laughs> it was. So Billy Wilder is wanting Mae West. <laughs> In a weird way, I can almost see it. I can see it. Yeah, she's I'm... so... A caricature, yes. which I think Norma Desmond was to a degree, a caricature. Yes. But here's the thing that's interesting. Mae West was insulted <laughs> yes, by she was. the offer, which just goes to show you she didn't know a good thing when she saw it. I mean, the, the very idea of playing a washed up, possibly insane diva just did not appeal to Mae West. <laughs> well, and nowadays we'd go, oh, that's going to be nominated for an Academy yes, Award. That's the Meryl Streep role that will win the Oscar. That's the Meryl Streep role, yeah. No comedy is going to do that. Exactly. Um, so so after May kicked the script to the right. curb, he approached America's sweetheart, Mary Pickford. Okay. Which would have been another... Interesting. Odd choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been interesting to see in that, yeah. you know, the film industry grew up around her, so, so yeah. she could certainly be that... that that has been diva. Yeah, but, but she had no interest in playing an aging diva either. No? So no on Mary. <laughs> okay, so we've got actresses who don't want to have grown daughters and they don't want to be aging divas. He asks also silent film star Pola Negri. Right, which also would have would have been an interesting 
interesting choice because she kind of was Norma Desmond. Yes, from the yeah, silent the films. Silent yeah. Again, it just did not appeal to her. She just didn't want to play that aging, washed-up diva. So he finally approaches Gloria Swanson. Who had not made a picture in 10 years at this point. And she read the script and... <sighs> Smart lady. Yeah. She knew it. Vanity be damned. Yes, yes. (laughs) She knew a good part when she saw it. (laughs) She did. She did. Now, what's surprising to me as well is that William Holden was not a first choice for the role. And in fact, he was almost a last minute replacement for somebody else. Okay. I'm sure um, got their hearts beating. (laughs) Yes. Montgomery Clift was supposed to play the role of Joe Gillis. Yeah. He agreed to the part after reading only five pages of the script. I think he really saw that was an important role. It could have been a great role for him. But at the very last minute, he had a change of heart, which many people say, and I don't know how well documented this is, but he was involved with a socialite and sometimes singer (laughs) named Libby Holman, who was an older woman. Okay. And she did not... You mean romantically Romantically. Okay. And she did not like the idea of him playing a young stud to this washed up... I think it hit too close to home for her. So she convinced Montgomery Clift not to do the role. And so he backed out. You know, I think he gave them two weeks notice to find a replacement. Right. And And that's when William Holden stepped in. Well, before that, though... Oh, well, that's true. He wasn't the next choice. He wasn't the next choice. Fred McMurray, who had just done Double Indemnity, not too long before, but for Billy Wilder, he was approached... And he passed as well. Yeah. So, you know, finally, William Holden, who was kind of in a career slump after making such a brilliant start with Golden Boy and Our Town, he gets the role and he's genius. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine anyone else playing the role. <laughs> no, I can't either. Yeah. And it goes on to be nominated for 11 Oscars and wins Best Screenplay. I mean, it's, and again, it's one of those films that if you haven't seen it, go see it. It is. And I know I preach about this on every episode, it seems, but the fact that Gloria Swanson did not win that Oscar that year is still a tragedy to me. Uh, You know, and also the fact that William Holden and Eric von Stroheim and Nancy Olsen also lost, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I still scratch my head over that one. Yeah, me too. I think before we go on to many more of these folks... Let's jump into our Hollywood pop quiz. All right. And so we're going to stick to casting themes. Everyone knows the Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece, Vertigo. Kim Novak was not the first choice to play the dual role in Vertigo. Who was the original actress cast and why did she drop out? All right. We'll have the answer to that and more. I could have been a contenders (laughs) after this. Stephen Nan will be right back, but first, another stop on the Hollywood tour. The influence that movie stars have on fashion is undisputed. People love to buy clothes they see on the big screen. But did you know that sometimes when a star doesn't wear something, that can also cause a stir in the garment industry? Listen to this. In 1934, actor Clark Gable starred with Claudette Colbert in It Happened One Night. Now, in a very well-known scene, Gable appears on screen taking off his dress shirt and he's not wearing an undershirt underneath. Legend says that almost immediately, women across America stopped buying undershirts for their husbands. And believe it or not, that one scene and the fashion trend it caused sent the undershirt market into a freefall. And now back to Stephen Ann from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. Welcome back, everybody. But before we go any further with great casting stories, I just wanted to give a shout out to Karen Hatches, 
from Centerport, New York, on beautiful Long Island. Thank you for listening, Karen. Say hi to Kathy and Dennis. And you are our first ever listener of the week. Yay! Yay. All right, our next uh, casting issue... And I'm going to say issue. issue. I love that you call it an issue. It's a casting issue because... It is an issue. And it's an issue because the roles that these actresses are turning down are not because of content in the story, not because it's not a good enough part. (laughs) It's because of something I think kind of ridiculous. Exactly. (laughs) It's wardrobe. 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 So the first one (laughs) is From Here to Eternity. Yes, which From Here to Eternity, it's based on the popular book by James Jones. It was sold to Columbia. I mean, everybody in Hollywood was clamoring to be a part of this romantic war drama. Of course. Uh, You know, it was all about the men and women right before the attack on Pearl Harbor. The great Fred Zinneman was directing. Who wouldn't want to be in this movie? No, who wouldn't want to be in it? And he's very interested in, once again, Joan Crawford (laughs) as playing... All roads lead to Joan Crawford. Yes, all roads do. We should write that book. Yes. As Karen Holmes, uh, the wife of the captain who's having the affair with the enlisted guy, um, First Sergeant Milton Warden. So Joan Crawford, it's a great part. Oh, great part. Although there's part of me that can't quite see... Burt Lancaster rolling around in the sand with John Crawford. I can't I don't either. Know. That's I can't just either. me. No. But when she's told, when Joan Crawford is told that her character is not going to be wearing <laughs> designer dresses and furs, she basically said, mm-mm. So Zinneman tries to explain to her that the character of Karen would be shopping at Sears Roebuck, not Bloomingdale's, based on her husband's military salary. Right. That Just makes perfect logic. sense. Yes, of course. You want the film to be authentic. But still, Joan Crawford wanted Christian Dior, and so she walked away from the part over wardrobe. Okay. <laughs> so playing against type, Deborah Carr is brought in to play Karen, and she has no trouble wearing Sears Roebuck. And, you know, it was a smart move on Deborah Carr's part because, yeah. you know, she was known for playing such highbrow, noble, upper crust ladies right. that now she got to play this lusty, you know, military man's wife who frolics with Burt Lancaster. It changed Hollywood's perception of her. Right. Smart move. And you know what that does? That always guarantees an Academy Award nomination. <laughs> At which she got. Right. <laughs> Along right. with everybody else in the movie. <laughs> yes. Now there's another film that has a similar issue, <laughs> which just floors me. Those ladies and their wardrobe needs. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, it's 1959. Otto Preminger was making the courtroom drama Anatomy of a Murder, and he cast Lana Turner. Lana, good old Lana Turner was was going to play the wife of the soldier who's accused of murder, which, of course, James Stewart defends. Great role, great movie, great part. Otto Preminger, what could go wrong? Right. And she wasn't being offered those kinds of roles. So this could have been a real boon to her career. Yes. And I think it would have. But. Once again. (laughs) Everything was fine until they discussed wardrobe. (laughs) And Lana wanted what Lana wanted. And she wanted designer clothes. She wanted the fur. She wanted to look great. She didn't want the suit off the rack. No. And that's what (laughs) that woman would have actually bought. Because that's where they would have been, you know, economically. She And she actually talks about this, right, in her autobiography. <laughs> yes. And she says, I have never favored ready-to-wear clothing on screen. So I suggested that my dressmaker run up the kind of suit that he had in mind. And the next evening, <laughs> she gets a phone call. Yes. <laughs> She basically got a call from Otto Preminger, who read her the riot act a little bit and just told her how ridiculous 
ridiculous that was. Right. And right. It, there was going to be no designer clothes. So she slammed down the phone, called her agent, and told him to get her out of it. She didn't want to do it. And there she went. So the role goes to the spectacular, oh, exquisite Lee Remick. Yeah, who was so letter perfect and so good in that role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it all worked out. It all worked out. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Ah, now this—that's another great story. I, hearing this story, I kind of can't get those two originally desired folks out of my head. Yes, I wish we could still see them do it. I, I know, me too. Warner Brothers chief Jack Warner—he approached playwright Edward Albee about buying the film rights to *Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf*, which was his bombastic play about this toxic marriage set against the backdrop of academia. Well, Warner Brothers—they said that. They really wanted Betty Davis and James Mason to play the roles of Martha and George, the dueling duo. Oh, and they would be exquisite, wonderful. And, and Edward Albee loved this idea. I bet he did. He, he was thrilled by the casting. You know, he even said how James Mason was just perfect for the role and even commented that Martha, the character, even references Betty Davis. Exactly. When she quotes her famous What a Dump line yep. from Davis's film Beyond the Forest in 1949. So everybody's happy. They're about to shoot <laughs> the film. Production is getting closer. And Mike Nichols has kind of a change of heart. Yeah, the boy genius director, he gets this idea that perhaps audiences just couldn't quite stomach two hours of bickering, bitching, yelling cruelty. And so he needed stars to make it a little more palatable. Because Betty Davis and James Mason weren't a... But by this time, they were a little... Sure, long, a, little a, little, a little long. But yeah. who better to get the public behind this than Elizabeth Taylor. Right. Well, before that, though, I should say, Nichols toyed with the idea of casting Jack Lemon and Patricia Neal in the roles, but Lemon dropped out um, over money issues, and Neal dropped out to make herself available to play Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate, which was a role, you know, sadly she never got to perform due to her, 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 stroke. her stroke. Jack Lemon seems too young for me yeah, in that role. Yeah, I, I don't see him in the role. Yeah. I see her. I think I see Patricia Neal. So the screenwriter who is adapted Albie's play, yes. Ernest Lehman, he encourages Nichols to cast 32-year-old Elizabeth Taylor yeah, to play 52-year-old Martha. Which I think Mike Nichols knew that this was a stretch. This was a little bit controversial to cast Elizabeth Taylor, but right. she was the biggest movie star on the planet, so yeah. why wouldn't you? Right. But to her credit, Elizabeth Taylor she really dedicated herself to becoming Martha. She gained weight. She really let her vanity go. She, she did. She really embodied she really this kind of frumpy, shrilly uh, professor's wife. And, and she's great. And her real-life husband, Richard Burton, was cast as George. Yes. So combined with whatever real-life emotional issues they were going through as a couple, their performances together, they were it was Big and body, emotional, perhaps a bit over the top for my taste. <laughs> but what do I know? I mean, the film went on to be nominated for 13 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director. It won Taylor new respect as an actress, and it won a second Oscar for her. Also co-star Sandy Dennis, another over-the-top actress, if you ask me. Uh, <laughs> Was also uh, She also won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar. While Richard Burton and George Siegel were nominated, they lost. And it was Mike Nichols' first film, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Which I think, how ballsy was it for this first-time director oh, to yeah. basically 
turn your back on Betty, Betty Davis, Davis and James Mason and James Mason just to go for popular yeah. choices yeah. that actually ultimately probably made the movie a lot of money. Yep. Absolutely. There is a quote, and I wish I had it. Edward Albee was never really happy with the casting of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it here, he really wished that he could have seen Betty Davis and James Mason, that it might have been less exciting, but it would have been a little truer to what he wanted. Mm -hmm. All right. Our last film is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, 1969. One of my favorites. All-time favorites. We love it. We love it. (laughs) And this one has a strange trajectory of Sundances. You know, Paul Newman was always slated to play Butch Cassidy. Butch Cassidy. But uh, not so much with Robert Redford. So the role was initially offered to Jack Lemmon, whose production company had produced (laughs) Paul Newman's film Cool Hand Luke in 1967. Now, I can't see Jack Lemmon in that role. Again, Jack Lemmon kind of goes in the George Raft category of, you're a bad picker. You can't pick scripts. Yeah, yeah. And he turns it down. (laughs) Because he doesn't like to ride horses. That was his excuse. All right. Isn't that crazy? And he felt like he had already played similar roles, which I'm like, really? Yeah. Who would that be? I know. So then they consider Steve McQueen and Warren Beatty. Yeah, which, which interesting. Both would have been interesting mm-hmm. choices because they certainly had that um, bravado and that sexy appeal. Yes, um, and they're yeah. and they're a little younger. At least I think yeah. Warren Beatty's a little younger than Paul Newman. Yeah, but both of them turned down the role. Yeah, um, Beatty thought the film was too similar to his Bonnie and Clyde. And McQueen backed out over disagreements he had with Newman, which is funny because they ended up in 1974. They appeared in the Towering Inferno together, finally, and they ch- they argued over billing. It yes. was a huge thing about the billing of that movie. So I think Paul Newman gets top billing and then Steve McQueen, but Steve McQueen's line is slightly higher yes. than Paul Newman's. And I think that was the beginning of this thing called diagonal billing. Yes. It at least became popular due to their disagreement. They also received in that movie, just as a little side note, they also received the same salary in Towering Inferno and the same number of lines. Yeah. And and somebody <laughs> counted those lines. Yes. <laughs> Yes. That was Steve McQueen's insistence from the research yeah. that I did. So Yeah, I, I think it was all McQueen. I don't think Paul Newman gave a darn about it. But Steve McQueen was very competitive yeah. and wanted to make sure he was treated with respect and fairly. Yes. Another interesting thing about going back to Butch Cassidy was that I always think Catherine Ross was the perfect at a place. I can't think of anybody better, but she was. She almost didn't get the part. They wanted her initially. Uh-huh. She was tied up with another film. Okay. So they were hot on Jacqueline Bissett to play at a place. Interesting. And it was going further. And then, of course, Catherine Ross's people find out that it's going further with Jacqueline Bissett. And guess what? Catherine Ross suddenly became available. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) All the games of Hollywood. (laughs) And of course, we know that Robert Redford ended up playing the Sundance Kid to perfection. And named a film festival after it. (laughs) He did indeed. Well, these contenders are really interesting. And maybe in another life, we'll get to see these films with (laughs) the original cast. You know, there's a lot more in the original blog post. So if you want to go back and read others, please check out the blog post at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. I think before we go, we should give the answer to our Hollywood pop quiz. Oh, yes, we should. The question was, in Alfred Hitchcock's film Vertigo, Kim Novak was not the original star. 
Who was it? And why did she drop out? Can I make a guess? Make make a guess. I love this. Is it Janet Lee? Oh, you're so close. Okay. It was actually Vera Miles. Oh, Vera Miles. Which he had worked with in The Wrong Man and loved her. He placed her under personal contract, and her next role was to be Vertigo. She even did wardrobe testing, and something happened, and I forget what it was. The production got delayed slightly, and Vera Miles got pregnant. Okay. And Hitchcock was furious that she would <laughs> dare to have a life outside of his world. And, and there was a real falling out with her for quite a while. While, but ultimately, they made up, and she did Psycho, Psycho with and, Janet Lee. Yeah. Wow. We hope that she'll give us a follow on social media. We're on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram with the handle at From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. And our YouTube channel does have photographs to go along with these episodes. Yes, please subscribe. I think you'll really enjoy seeing the visuals that go along with this podcast episode. And also, if you have any thoughts, questions, ideas, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at info at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneider. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schneebly and Toth. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. That's a wrap. Thank you.